I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. And this is Sports Lit. Growing up in the 80s, I could never figure out why so many people my parents' age were Packer fans. Why not the Bears, Washington, the Giants, the 49ers, the successful teams of my era? These days, especially here on the East Coast, so close to the eastern seaboard of the U.S., your buddy who loves Sundays in front of their tablet or TV can often be a Patriots fan. And, well, just like I wondered back in the 80s where those Packer Packer fans came from, I get it now. I'm older and wiser. Win and you're in. People start to love you. And there's an entire generation that knows only Patriots Super Bowl success and would never remember Schaefer Stadium and its plumbing problems, Gino Capoletti, or drunken fans storming the highway with a piece of the uprights in 1985. (laughs) In fact, I had no idea. To be quite frank, it's easy to slip into the fishbowl of pro sports, and depending on what city or market you're in, you'll you'll be bombarded with everything to do with that team because it's what turns the dial. That's why it was refreshing to read The Pats, a comprehensive illustrated history of the New England Patriots. Don't be fooled, this isn't a picture book. It's a meticulously written, thorough background on a team that has been around since 1960 after businessman Billy Sullivan was awarded an AFL expansion franchise in 1959. You would not expect anything less from Glenn Stout, who co-authored this book with Richard A. Johnson, the curator of the Sports Museum of New England. Stout is well known as Stout is most well known as the series editor of Best American Sports Writing, which highlights the cream of the crop in sports journalism year after year. It's been running since 1991. Nate, you actually handed me that book and was a, it's a big influence on why this show exists. What did you come away with? I'm very interested after reading about your favorite team. <laughs> well, well played, well played, Neil. I think you, I think you. Uh think favorite and loathe they're synonymous <laughs> it, would, it, 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 it just goes like that the first time we do a book that's about the nfl it, it's about the patriots by ki- i'm kidding obviously uh you know th- you know what that this provided some of the nuance that kind of often gets stripped out with a team that's that popular and that's polarizing that would be what you would expect from you know glenn stout and and richard johnson they've worked together you know on several other books about you know these sort of like you know flagship franchises you know red sox century was a favorite of mine and you know glenn's stock and trade to lift some of his own words is to get into the weeds of writing which is you know we aspire to meld with our sports devotion so i guess that's part of the frustration with the fact that there's always a sense and i'm probably i'm overstating for effect there's sophisticated you know fans and and there's you know shallow fandom in every fan base right And for me, football out of the five major team sports is slash was, you know, my favorite sport. I guess I could say I'm sort of in that reconciliation process between knowing what I get the most visceral pleasure from watching on, you know, on a screen and in person. And then knowing what we know now about the physical toll the game takes on its athletes, which is something, a theme that Glenn visits visits throughout the book, uh, you know, football is, is uh, sort of at this watershed point where it's really got to change and advocate for itself. It's reached the extent that a lot of players are saying, you know, this isn't worth it. Parents are steering children away from it as a participation sport, which I think is kind of a shame because I think it's a sport that accommodates a lot of different body types and personality types. But, we all, but we've yet to see any owners or coaches or media rights holders, you know, walk away. And it's so there's that challenge, right? It's hard for a fan to turn away. There's that Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, as well go right into new england right 
in the uh, spring and summer, we are reformers, but in the fall, we stand by the old. That sort of comes to mind when I come across people saying, oh, yeah, I'm done with the NFL, man. Yeah, sure you are. Uh, it's not that's not judgment. It's just that, you know, being cynical a little bit, how hard it is to get to the place and have the courage of convictions. Like you didn't hear many people saying that after that recent uh, L.A. Kansas City game where both teams scored the, more than 50 points. I mean, I would love to get to that place, ideally, like where I just say, OK, I'm, I'm walking away from the, the NFL. I just, you know, it's just too aligned with too many things that I am not for like but I can't give it up until the Minnesota Vikings <laughs> win the Super Bowl so that's probably why though even though it was a 38-7 curb stomping uh, I broke down emotionally after the Vikings uh, NFC championship game loss against the Philadelphia Eagles in January 2018 like so close to being free you know as a dead spin comment or later put it I just want the Vikings to win the Super Bowl so I can stop watching football and yet, of course, they were so far because they're the Vikings. So, but, you know, enough about my hopeless sporting obsession. This is a book that sort of reveals that the Patriots were kind of a hopeless sporting <laughs> obsession before they attained this, you know, ubiquity in North America's sporting consciousness as the team that everyone, you either love to hate or you align with them because everyone loves a winner. And I'm a dick about this. I'll admit it. I see someone with a Patriots hat on. I'm going to presume certain things. I'm going to be like, so... When did you become a diehard fan of the Patriots? Diehard lifelong fan. Second Super Bowl win? Third one? I'm going to ask them if they know how many defensive linemen there are in a 3-4 defense. I'm going to ask them if they need me to diagram a screen pass for them. I need to work on that stuff. And this book, uh, it definitely helped me with that. Uh, you know, it's kind of, and you know, I like to think that, you know, some of this is just, you know, it's a resistance to reductionism, you know, and this book does say, okay, hey, there were times the Patriots have failed. There were times they didn't do the right th thing. So, you know, this is sort of a team that, you know, inspires all these feelings. And we're kind of in an age when only feelings seem to matter to a disturbingly large portion of the populace. But this book is factual and it's got a great theme to it. And, you know, it makes you re really understand this. I was surprised that this is really the first major history anyone has attempted of the franchise. Uh uh, you know, when you consider how successful they were, uh, but and, and it's just been such a 180 that they did. Uh, you know, Glenn and Richard, through you know his archival work, have, they've done a good job of sort of undumbing down the, the narrative about the team. They really show, really, for the first 30 years, 40 years, the Patriots were kind of like the Paul Rudd character in the uh, sort of uh, screwball comedy, Our Idiot Brother. They were kind of, you know, it's this movie. And, I, and of course, I use a Paul Rudd movie because Paul Rudd's a Kansas City fan and the Patriots have broken Kansas City's heart many times. I want Paul Rudd to, like, come after us. No, uh, they were kind of, the, you know, the naif, the well-meaning type that couldn't stay out of their own way. And then, you know, Robert Kraft buys the team. Bill Parcells comes along. Then Bill Belichick come you know, takes over a while. They managed to, you know, they saw something in Tom Brady that other people did. Then they were able to sort of buy low on him as a late round pick before Brady had, you know, the body that allowed him to apply his Wayne Gretzky-like mental processing to, you know, the passing phase. And they've become some, something else entirely. And they've kept winning. I mean, they're probably the longest running dynasty pro football's ever had. They've lasted longer than the 49ers, but yet they haven't, 
you know, eating themselves alive like other NFL dynasties have, like because, you know, people left or some people started to believe their own hype. But enough about, you know, my <laughs> history of the NFL and I guess, you know, people believing their own hype. Enough about Jerry Jones or Al Davis. May, may he, you know, rest in peace. I guess I needed this book. And I, I think about 90% of Patriots fans probably do too. <laughs> well, you know, there's a saying or there, there was a quote attributed to Lemmy from Motorhead where Dave Grohl said one day he was talking to Lemmy and he says, I remember before rock and roll. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, I remember, I was dating myself, I remember football before the Patriots were ever remotely good. And I think you do too. Yeah, just to add to that, we think back, like, like we, we try not to date ourselves, like, so late 80s, early 90s, you know, to us, Boston was sort of synonymous with excellence in sports, like, you know, championships with the Celtics and then just individual matchless brilliance, you know, Larry Bird, Bobby Orr, Ted Williams, Roger Clemens, Bill Russell and his 11 rings. And then there were sort of the Patriots were kind of this this goofy team. I bet if you went back and did a rewatch of Cheers and counted all the references to Boston sports teams, the Patriots would have had the fewest, even though the NFL is the most popular sport. And then that's all turned around and, and Glenn and Richard have, and the guest writers that they have on in the book, like Leslie Visser, Howard Bryan, George, Plimpton. George, the late, great, late, great George Plimpton, I believe. Uh, <laughs> they've, you know, they've definitely uh, worked that in. Well, Nate, well said, and without further ado, we welcome for the first time to Sports Lit, Glenn Stout, after the break. Well, it's a pleasure to be joined by Glenn Stout, and before we we get going on talking about the Pats, Glenn, and obviously on the best American sports writing, I just want to let you know we're recording this in the Toronto Public Library. Uh, You're obviously very familiar with, or maybe not obviously, but the library is a very familiar place to you, is it not? Oh, it sure is. I was a librarian for a number of years and worked at the Boston Public Library, and uh, many of the books I've done have been built out of the collections held at libraries, most notably from the microfilm newspaper collection that libraries uh, save and record. I think in many ways you can say I've built my uh, entire career out of microfilm. <laughs> well, I want to start uh, and go right into the book, uh, the, the Illustrated History of the New England Patriots, The Pats, by asking you a very simple and direct question, and that is, why write this history now at this juncture of where the team is at? Well, you know, it struck us that the team was nearly 60 years old. Uh, they are the most successful franchise in sports over the last uh, 15 or 20 years, certainly the most successful franchise in football, and no one had ever attempted to do a full narrative history of the team. There was one narrative history done in the 1970s, uh, but it only carried, you know, it only covered the first 15 years of the team. And there have been a number of, uh, of other books done that are anecdotal histories, you know, funny stories about the Patriots, a few illustrated books that were mostly just pictures. And we thought that it was time that somebody really sat back and looked at the team uh, over the course of its entire history and decided to tell that story and to find the larger story within the many stories that take place over the course uh, you know over the course of each season and I think we've done that I think they're a team that's deserving of a treatment like that 
Uh, and then another reason would be that, you know, the Patriots, due to their success over the last 15 or 20 years, have a whole new generation of fans that have come to follow them that really didn't know anything about the early history of the team. So I think if you're under 30 years old, uh, the first three quarters of the book is going to be brand new to you because you don't remember those years. And then for longtime fans, it's an opportunity to step back, uh, just look at how much has happened, how they went from a laughing stock of the league to arguably one of the league's dynasties. And Glenn, why why do you think it, there was that sort of that uh, gap? What why why hadn't there been a major history of the team up until now? What it, what kept someone else from doing it? It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I laugh when I say that, but it's true. It is an extraordinary amount of work to go through each and every year to go through reel after reel of microfilm and page after page after page of stories about the team, you know, features that other people have written. Uh, you know, now you can go to YouTube and you can watch replays. And it takes an extraordinary amount of time. And I, quite frankly, I think that nobody else was really up to it. Now, Richard Johnson and I, the partner with which I, I did this book, and we've done a number of books together, we've been through this before. We've done large team histories similar to this one on the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Cubs in baseball. Uh, so we kind of know the process. And until you know the process, uh, I think a project like this is just incredibly daunting to approach. Yeah, and for sure. Uh, and I, actually, I do, do remember getting your book, Red Sox, uh century and i was so fascinated by it i started reading it in the press box at a hockey game at the old uh, winnipeg arena this was in, right in 2003 and then someone leaned over and tapped me does he have peter gammon's uh, deadline column from after the, the fisk game so and you did actually have it um, <laughs> so, so there we go well you know you try to you try to make sure you have everything that a reader would expect to see in the book and then you hope that through the process of looking at it, everything again, you, you bring a fresh set of eyes to things. Uh, you know, the memory is fickle. Memories are fickle. And sometimes remember things that didn't really happen or that happened somewhat differently. Or when you're allowed to step back and start putting things together, you start seeing things that in the game-by-game, season-by-season experience of following a team that you weren't aware of or that you missed. Like I said, we, you know, this isn't a book that goes through and tells, well, this is the story of 1964, and now this is the story of 1965. It's a narrative history. It finds the larger story of the franchise and does try to tell that story. We're very much focused on, you know, telling a narrative, not just producing a book that has nice pictures and a little bit of text. Um, you know, you can certainly look through it for the pictures, but it's meant to be read in the same way, uh, you know, any, you know, historical account of nonfiction is meant to be read. Yeah, and now, and for, and how sort of, I guess, improbable and maybe even miraculous was the Patriots' early history? Like, starting from, like, I had really had no idea how, uh, I guess tenuous it was in their early years. Like they basically went through the whole run of the American Football League in the '60s without having a permanent stadium, and then sort of moved into a one that was kind of thrown up in a trice out, out in Foxborough. Right. I mean, Billy Sullivan, their first owner, 
deserves a great deal of credit for getting the franchise off the ground. Because of all the men who uh, started teams in the AFL, Billy had the least money out of anybody. Uh, he really had no business owning a team, quite frankly. Uh, they only took him in because they had seven teams and they needed an eighth one. Because if they didn't have eight teams, they couldn't have a balanced schedule. Uh, so that's, you know, so Billy stepped in, found some investors, but from the very start, he was underfunded. Uh, compared to many of the other teams. I mean, you know, Baron Hilton of the Hilton Hotel chain owned one of the first franchises. Billy Sullivan was no Baron Hilton. So Billy was always trying to cobble things together. And in his mind, I think the real motivation for him to own a team was, you know, very early on he said he he hated the idea of being a non-entity. And he thought that by owning a football team, he could be somebody. And part of being somebody for Billy was he also thought that by owning a team, he could get a stadium built. And by that, I think he meant getting somebody else to build a stadium for him. And if he could do that, not only would he make money, but he would become a player. He would become someone who was a developer, who was looked up to, uh, you know, who would be a, a scion of industry. That just simply, you know was hard to come by. He didn't have the money. He didn't have the connections to make the political wheels turn enough to get a stadium built by the government for him. So he was left to patch it together as best he could so that when the team first started playing, they played in what was Old Braves Field on the Boston University camp campus, now known as Nickerson Field, the ballpark the Boston Braves had abandoned almost 10 years before. They went on to play at Fenway Park for a while, but they were always second to the Red Sox there, so sometimes they had to play at Harvard Stadium, and Harvard didn't really want them. That was below Harvard, having you know these crass professional football players walk on their hallowed turf. And you know sometimes they played at Boston College, which was really a, a, a second-rate college stadium. So you know from the word go, they just had a lot of things stacked against them. Uh, you know, part of the, the impact of not being as well-funded as other teams meant that in the early years they didn't even scout players from the West or from the South. So most of the players they drafted were from the Midwest and the East. And at that time period, Eastern football was on the downswing. So they were really hamstrung uh, by a number of issues right from the very start. Speaking of Eastern football, uh, I think if you ask the average person, the average football fan, they'll tell you the breadbasket for football is Ohio or Florida, uh, the South perhaps, uh, on a bigger picture or bigger scale. How are the roots of this game associated with New England? And you delve into that because you really get into the nitty-gritty. So explain the roots of football in New England. Sure. Well, Billy Sullivan himself was from Lowell, Massachusetts. And Billy went to Boston College. And Billy went to Boston College at a time that Boston College was trying to become a football powerhouse. They really hadn't been, but, uh, you know, the good fathers that ran the university saw what football did to Notre Dame, and they looked around and thought, hey, we can do that for Boston College. And so they put a big emphasis on football while Billy was there, and they enjoyed some success. But elsewhere in the East, 
you know, Harvard football, which had been dominant in the early part of the 20th century, you know, was the Ivy League. And the Ivy League certainly wasn't the Big Ten or the Southeastern Conference. And there were really very, very few other Eastern teams that competed nationally. Syracuse did, but that was about it. So by focusing on Eastern players, and particularly people with a Boston College connection, Billy was kind of behind the times from the very beginning. He had a lot of players from Boston College. They simply weren't as good, generally speaking, as players from elsewhere in the country. And he also hired a lot of people who had attended Boston College or had worked for Boston College, even the coaching staff. And similarly, they weren't quite up to speed uh, to, the degree, to the degree to which uh, a lot of staffs from other teams were. So, you know, the Eastern influence really held, you know, held the Patriots back for a while. It's ironic now, of course, that they're a regional team, that they're the New England Patriots and not the Boston Patriots, and that from a marketing perspective, having the entire region to themselves has proven to be a real boon. But that certainly wasn't the case in the early days. Has football at the grassroots level taken off over the last, I'd say, roughly decade since the Patriots started playing well? Are you aware of that? Is there, is there, has there been a rekindling of, of the love of football due, the, due to the success of the Patriots? Well, I think there's more emphasis on football at the collegiate level now in the East over the past you know, 20 or 25 years than there was before. I mean, Boston College is competitive every year and is a very, very good team. The University of Connecticut has a Division I football team now, and a lot of other Eastern teams have, have decided to reemphasize football. Rutgers down in New Jersey, uh, Syracuse has never gone away. But on the grassroots level, you know, in high schools and things like that, uh, football is struggling in the East, as it is in, in many other places. Uh, due to the concussion issue, uh, there are fewer young men who want to play football. There are fewer parents who want their kids to play football. And, you know, the days uh, in New England where once upon a time a big matchup between two longtime rivals, say Lawrence and, and Lowell, Massachusetts, a high school game, could draw 20,000 people, that's long gone. That doesn't exist anymore. So at that level, football is hanging on in New England. But it's, uh, it's not as, as strong as it used to be. And I'm in Vermont, and quite frankly, in Vermont, it's barely hanging on. The uh, local high school where my wife teaches, uh, they stopped their season in the middle of the year this year because they simply didn't have enough players. Did, did it, observing that, uh, did, was, did that sort of factor into the motivation to do this book? Like, let's make this, you know, produce this history, you know, well it's still here before it, it you know it, it disappears as a pastime perhaps well disappears. i don't think i don't think that was a factor in why we did the book but it was certainly something that i was aware of as i was doing the book is that you know football right now is it something of a crossroads uh, primarily because of the concussion issue and football going forward over the next 60 years may be a far different game than football has been during the nearly 50 years, nearly 60 years that the uh, Patriots have been in existence. So in a sense, you know, it's, it's a really good time to do the book because I think, you know, football going forward may end up being a somewhat different game than it is today. It may end up occupying a different place 
in the cultural fabric uh, than it occupies now, where it's still, I think, probably the preeminent spectator sport uh, in the States right now. Certainly on television it is. But, you know, there are inklings that, uh, you know, that won't last forever. I like to remind people that if we go back to the to the beginning of the 20th century, you know, the three biggest sports in the United States were boxing, baseball, and bicycling. And, you know, right now, no one would argue that bicycling is a major sport in the United States. So nothing ever stays the same. And I think when you approach a book like this, you have to be aware of kind of long-time trends and currents and uh, not fall into the trap that uh, just because something is this way now or was this way then, that it necessarily always stays that way. Sports uh, is built to grow and evolve and change. And uh, I think the book recognizes that because, you know, we show the growth of the Patriots and the evolution uh, of the Patriots to the present day, but we also recognize that there may be some rumblings on the horizon that, uh, that don't bode well for the future of the, of the sport as a whole. Yeah, and, and to what extent this, this I mean, it, when I first, you know, got my copy of this, I, you know, I was like, ooh, a celebrate this book about the Patriots, you know, a team, I, I'll admit it, I loathe the Patriots. <laughs> but how important was it that all through this narrative, you sort of weave in the social issues, like whether it was, you know, racial double standards, concussions, uh, the Lisa Olson, you know, the harassment of Lisa Olson in 1990. How important was that to, in terms of presenting a whole picture and maybe sort of you know, educating fans on it through through the, you know, the form, format of this book. Sure. Well, I think uh, that's one way you respect your readers and you respect the fan base is that uh, this is a book that's willing to go into areas that are at times uncomfortable, that are at times don't cast the Patriots in the best light. In the best light. I mean, there's plenty for Patriot fans to celebrate in this book. And I don't think the book is hypercritical at all, but, you know, we don't write Valentines. I'm not here working for Hallmark cards. Uh, I consider myself, you know, try to be a serious historian, and I look at what actually happened. And if you look at what actually happened, there are moments when, uh, you know, the Patriots didn't do the right thing. There's moments when football didn't do the right thing. And when you encounter those moments, you have to treat them seriously. And, you know, we brought up Red Sox Century before, which was the first team history we did, Richard and I did. And in that book, it was really the first book that took on the issue of the Red Sox and race head on. Um, that's something that I think readers appreciated. That's something that fans appreciated. And I think it's one of the reasons why the book was so successful. Because, you know, everybody gets tired of, you know, just eating the icing off the cake. Uh, you know, what we try to do is, is give you a full meal and one that's based in reality. And that is not just um, the highlights of the team, but one that's, uh, you know, at times thought-provoking that might uh, cause you to look at it a little different and cause you to appreciate those things that you, that you are a are the reason you're a fan, but also to recognize that there are, are other elements involved. I think fans themselves, uh, even with a team they dearly love, you know, they're the most critical people of all. That's what fuels sports talk radio, <laughs> you know. Uh, they're the first ones to, to say that something's wrong sometimes. 
So I think this book respects that, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we don't shy away from issues that uh, a lot of other books, um, you know, do shy away from because they think fans just want a Valentine. Uh, I think this is a book where, you know, if something good happens, you'll be able to go in and you'll be able to see the precursors to that. And if something bad happens, you'll be able to go in and you'll be able to see that, you know, this isn't the first time that uh, the franchise has had trouble. This isn't the first time they've had to overcome something. This isn't the first time they've had to adjust. Uh, so there are lessons built, you know, there are lessons built in how teams, how leagues, how sports react to troubles and issues with their sport. I think what you're talking about really is, is respecting the intelligence of the reader. And that's what I, what I found when I read this is exactly like you say, not, not everyone, not a football fan, not a Pats fan, not a sports fan in general wants to see a Valentine. They, 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 they want their, their, I guess, sense of intelligence to be appealed to. And I think with the research you've done and obviously the work with Richard, um, that comes across certainly. So before my next question, I'm just going to ask you, please uh, explain who Richard Johnson is. Well, Richard Johnson, uh, we've collaborated on books for about 25 years now, and Richard is the curator of the Sports Museum of New England. That's headquartered at the Garden, where uh, the Bruins play and where the Celtics play. And uh, Richard is probably the most knowledgeable person on sports in New England that I know of. And beyond that, he also knows where all the bodies are buried, where all the pictures are, who the great collectors are, and he's one of them. And then the collections of the museum that he's accumulated over the year is absolutely staggering the amount of material they have. So the way we do these books, generally speaking, is that I write the text, and Richard is responsible for the photographs. We always bring in some other writers to contribute essays because I think it's good to have a change of texture in the book along the way and to get some different perspectives. So we always bring in some, some other writers, and in this case we brought in people like Howard Bryant of ESPN, Leslie Visser, one of the first women to cover the Patriots, Upton Bell, who besides being a journalist, was also general manager of the team for a while, Ron Borges, who covered the team uh, for both the Boston Herald and the Boston Globe, and Lee Montville of the Boston Globe and of Sports Illustrated to give their contributions. So I think by doing that, what we try to do is we try to, to satisfy everybody. You know, it is a visual feast. Uh, Richard has a wonderful eye for material. You know, one of the things he has is, is there's a couple-page spread of the old covers of the Patriots' yearbooks in the 1960s, which are real period pieces. They're cartoons. Um, they're very colorful. You know, it's back before, you know, programs were uh, advertisements for a beer company or something like that, you know. And before they were, you know, um, just a marketing device. They, they really stand by themselves. And then just knowing where to get the best pictures and, and all that stuff. So, so it's a really good collaboration. And uh, as Richard said when we started this project, he said, well, it's time to put the band back together. And uh, that's exactly how I feel about it. You know, we uh, are able to do an entire book together and never be in the same room with each other while we do it. Uh, <laughs> he's the first reader of, of the book as I'm writing it. And then Richard is a, is a wonderful writer himself and always contributes 
contributes an essay as well. And in this book, he writes about the history of pro football in New England before the Patriots, because, uh, you know, pro football was tried here a number of times before the Patriots came along and was never able to stick. And Richard gets into that in some detail. Does the success of the franchise, and uh, that's obviously a theme, uh, over the last two decades, make the history more compelling from an interest level and from a marketing level? I mean, if they hadn't, if they weren't this good, would this history be, uh, you know, of interest to people in the same way? Well, I think obviously from a marketing level it does because interest in the franchise is very, very high. And uh, you know, had they not had this uh, this level of success over the last 20 years, it might be hard to support a book like this. Um, although, you know, we managed to, to do okay with the Red Sox book, even though the Red Sox hadn't won in about 85 years when we did that. But, but people, you know, had always thought the Red Sox should have won and didn't. Uh, you know, people really didn't think that the Patriots should have won and hadn't. They just hadn't for a long time. But, you know, you, so obviously for a marketing level, it's, it's very important that interest is high. But it also helps, uh, it helps the narrative because you have a built-in story um, already, and that built-in story is from laughingstock to dynasty. Uh, they didn't go from being a laughingstock to a dynasty purely by accident. Uh, they did some things very, very well. Um, you know, if Billy Sullivan, the first owner, had not been such a spectacular failure at the end of his tenure atop the Patriots, when they decided to lose about $100 million by trying to back the Michael Jackson victory tour that <laughs> threw him into bankruptcy and eventually forced the sale of the team, had that not happened, well, then maybe Bob Kraft doesn't end up owning the team a few years later. And if Kraft doesn't end up owning the team a few years later, well, maybe they end up moving to Hartford, or maybe they end up moving to another city, and the entire history of the team is different. And we might be writing, uh, you know, the history of the, uh, you know, the St. Louis Patriots, who would only have existed for about 25 years, because at one point they nearly moved to St. Louis. So, so it did give a natural arc to the to the book, and also gives us gave me something along the way to try to chart, and that's to try to chart how that transformation took place. You know, when I go into these books, there's a couple of questions I, I like to try to keep in mind all the time, and that's one to explain why they win when they win, two why they lose when they lose, and three why people care about it. And I think if I keep those three questions in mind and, again, try to focus on the, that larger narrative, tr make this a story, not just an encyclopedia, I think that's something readers really respond to. For many, the, the history of this team, and there's a whole generation that probably thinks this, the, you know, this team began playing in 2001. And, and for others, it, you know, the, the turning point, uh, the, you know, they, the, the, the people that might have seen some of the futility, the turning point is Bill Parcells. I just wanted you to describe how night and day it, it, it was with this franchise and perhaps, a, a, you know, what you identify as a turning point, as the biggest turning point. Well, I think during basically the entire tenure of Billy Sullivan, the expectation was that even when the Patriots were doing well, something would go wrong. Something crazy would happen. 
And that would be from, you know, they played in the AFL championship game after the 1963 season and then got blown out by the San Diego Chargers. I think it was 51 to 10. Why? Well, the Chargers were on steroids, and Will McDonough, the reporter of the Globe, gave away the game plan just before the game. And San Diego spied on them. So, so that was kind of a crazy way to lose. And then, you know, Billy Sullivan finally builds his stadium, and, oh, the first time they try to use it, all the toilets overflow, and everybody... <laughs> has to walk through six inches of sewage in the in the in the stadium and oh they finally you know reach the super bowl again the super bowl and the bears blow them out and a few years before that they were you know looked like they were a super bowl team a championship team under coach chuck fairbanks and as they're succeeding and it looks like they're going to the playoffs and going to get to the championship game chuck fairbanks decides that he wants to coach a college team. So essentially they lose their coach on the precipice of their greatest success. That was kind of the legacy under Billy Sullivan. Every time you thought they were going to make it, they didn't. It was Charlie Brown and the football. It just kept being pulled away from their fans over and over and over again. And even when they did have some success, like like, uh, winning a playoff game under Coach Ron Meyer, it came about because they had a prisoner on a work release program who sort of illegally used a, a snow brush on the front of a John Deere tractor to clear the field for the field goal kicker, which sent Don Shula, of the uh, coach of the Miami Dolphins, almost gave him a heart attack uh, because it was so unfair. Part of the reason that bad things kept on happening to the Patriots <clears throat> In addition to the fact that they were underfunded, was also the personnel's decisions that Billy Sullivan made, namely with the people atop the franchise, the coaches of the team. The real change was when Bill Parcells came in. That was really the first time they had a proven, top-notch, professional coach. Too often in the past, Billy had either hired someone from Boston College, like Mike Holovac, who was fine, but he wasn't a, a great coach. Uh, an assistant that everybody told him he should hire, like Cleve Rush from the New York Jets after the Jets beat Baltimore in the in the in Super Bowl three, and Rush was an alcoholic and had emotional trouble. Uh, Chuck Fairbanks always had his eye on another job. Ron Meyer had, uh, you know, just got out of the college ranks at SMU before the school got sanctioned because he was cheating like crazy. Uh, You know, they always hired the wrong guy. Bill Parcells was the right guy. And not only that, Bill Parcells was able to be the face of the franchise. And for too many years, the face of the franchise had been Billy Sullivan. And Billy was a a mercurial guy. He could uh, be very charming. He also held a lot of grudges. And he wasn't real popular with the press. Parcells knew how to play with the press. He knew how to control the press. Um, And he was a known commodity as a coach. He had done it before. So all of a sudden when Parcells came in, there was this level of professionalism that the franchise really had for the first time. And also the expectation that started at the top with Parcells that anything less than a championship was a failure. That was brand new to New England. You know, before then, you know, they were really happy if they were even in the playoff hunt come November. 
you know, the expectation that they would go all the way was a fantasy. But under Parcells, that suddenly became the expectation, and I think has very much remained the expectation ever since. And uh, the other, other, of course, you know, right guy at the right time is Robert Kraft. What was the sort of long game he played to become the owner? And how might have things turned out differently if hypothetically he had got the team earlier than the he did in the, I guess, around 1994, and maybe some of the negativity had maybe rubbed off on him? Right. Well, Bob Kraft's long game was that uh, he had an interesting experience when he was a younger man. Uh, you know, his, his wife's father owned a paper company. Bob Kraft came in as the son-in-law, essentially moved his father-in-law out, um, had, a big, had big success with the company, made a lot of money, and at one time owned a world team tennis franchise called the Boston Lobsters. And they only lasted a few years. And while he ran that uh, franchise, he realized that one of the reasons they didn't make it financially was that while he owned the team, he didn't own the facility they played in. So he didn't get the parking revenue. He didn't get the concessions revenue. He was determined not to let that happen again. So when the Patriots started to look like they would be available, he did a very smart thing, and he just bought the stadium. He realized, I think before anybody else did, that by owning the stadium, any subsequent sale would have to go through him. He later said that he thought he maybe should have bought the team at the same time he was buying the stadium for the first time. But I think had he done that, he wasn't financed well enough at the time, and he would have been stuck playing in old Sullivan Stadium for more years than he would have liked to. By holding off a few years, realizing that when the team was finally sold, and it went through a couple of owners after Billy Sullivan, James Orthwine, Victor Kayam, that he held the Trump card because in Massachusetts, uh, sports and politics are a pretty dirty business. And every time someone had tried to get a stadium built, uh, there just weren't enough envelopes to pass around to get that through the state house. And uh, Kraft realized that by owning the land, that he had the trump card there, that uh, he had a place to play, he owned the land, and they had a lease that stretched through the year 2000. So any subsequent buyer had to go through him. So when the team came up for sale again, and he had the money, uh, he, he just outbid everyone else, and they had to accept the highest bid. And that delivered in the team. It gave him, he already had the land, but it gave him leverage with the state then to parlay the state of Massachusetts against what turned out to be the state of Connecticut, who desperately wanted the Patriots and were willing to give them the sun and the moon and the stars. That was just enough for Kraft to use that as leverage in Massachusetts, for Massachusetts to provide some help on the infrastructure level, and then for Kraft to build the stadium himself so he wouldn't be beholden to the politicians in the future and would be free, essentially, to act with impunity. Uh, it was something of a cutthroat move. It was a very smart move as a businessman. And it did set up what has been a relatively stable ownership uh, atop the team for almost 30 years. And I think the stability of that ownership where Kraft doesn't have to answer to anybody but Bob Kraft or the fans if he chooses to, uh, but that's lent itself 
to not having to shift gears every few years to keep somebody happy. They've been able to plot along in one direction. Fortunately, they haven't had to change direction because it's been a positive direction, but they've been able to stay the course. And if you look at other franchises in whatever sport I think you look at, uh, a lot of ownership changes often lead to uh, changes of strategy. Or if ownership is not... Uh, stable, um, you know, they'll hire one person to be the coach or the manager, and three years later they'll hire somebody else with a different philosophy, and four years later they'll hire somebody else with a different philosophy. There's just no consistency. And uh, the Patriots, for better or worse, and mostly for the better, have been nothing if not consistent over the last 20 years. It seems like Bob Kraft did exactly what Bruce McNall, who was part of a book we discussed last week with Damian Cox, he had uh, what, what Kraft had is what McNall wanted. McNall said all he ever got with the Kings was the gate on Gretzky. He never got any concessions or any of the parking or anything like that. Um, but then right, I, and, and that you know, and that is uh, you know, been a huge benefit to the Patriots because you know around the Gillette Stadium now there's is that big shopping development that Billy Sullivan always wanted. You know, they use the venue for all sorts of other things. They've got their own state-of-the-art practice facility. All those things combine to make it a very attractive site for players, which certainly helps when it's free agent time and you're trying to entice a player to come to New England. Sticking with Bob Kraft, uh, I'm going to fast forward to one of my questions before I go back to the tuck rule, which I'm very interested in asking you about. And I want to find out from you... Um, and it's written in the book uh, and explained in the book how Myra Kraft, Bob's late wife, had a say in the running of the franchise, including ruling out players based on character. Well, Myra Kraft had really no interest in football previous to her husband buying the team. Uh, you know, Kraft always tells the story that he had season tickets and it was for he and his sons. And the whole time he had season tickets, long before he owned the Patriots, Myra Kraft, his wife, never went to a single game. That was something the boys did. Uh, she was much more philanthropic than her husband. Her father had, uh, had you know, escaped uh, Germany just before the Nazis and had, you know, built himself up from nothing and created a fortune, one which Bob Kraft uh, increased exponentially, but he was very successful. And toward the end of her father's life, he became much more focused on philanthropic efforts. Um, she kind of took up that mantle from her father, and she was much more concerned with, you know, what the money could do in the community and everything like that. But when they did buy the team, she did become more involved. She kind of realized, you know, it's almost like the, the wife of the president, the first lady, has a role. Uh, she already had a role in the community, so she had to kind of slide into that role with the Patriots. And, you know, what happened was the Patriots kept on stepping in it in regard to domestic violence, whether it was one of their players committing domestic violence or whether it was, you know, the Lisa Olson incident that you mentioned before where uh, Lisa Olson, a reporter for the Boston Herald, was sexually harassed in the locker room. And as a woman, Myra Kraft felt some responsibility uh, to stand up for that. And for a time period, I think she did have some influence over the team. There was the, the famous uh, instance where they, 
they drafted a player named Christian Peter, and Christian Peter had been all sorts of trouble when he was in college. He'd had some domestic violence issues. He was accused of rape, uh, was, you know, by many accounts, not a good guy. Yet the Patriots went ahead and drafted him anyway. And shortly after he was drafted, when it came out the full extent of what he'd done, uh, well, well, when it came out publicly, because the Patriots were pretty much aware of everything he'd done before they drafted him, you know, she sort of put her foot down and was like, you know, I can't be involved in this. And she thought enough of, uh, you know, her social issues that she was supporting that uh, she knew she couldn't, on the one hand, uh, you know, be involved in all these charities, and on the other hand, be involved with a football team that employed somebody like that. So the Patriots released him, uh, re- released Christian Peter. Bill Parcells was the coach at the time. Bill Parcells was absolutely livid because he saw that she was interfering in his team. Um, but, you know, she, she kind of put a cap a little bit on the crass ambition that I think a lot of sports owners have, where they'll do just about anything, and winning justifies just about anything. Uh, to, to some degree, I think Myra Kraft was able to, to put a lid on that and cause her husband to step back a little bit. And, um, you know, not that the Patriots have been immune, certainly, to getting involved with uh, players who, you know, uh, are not good people off the field. Uh, you know, you can cite Aaron Hernandez for that. Not that they've been immune to that, but um, at least she forced them to consider that issue. And uh, that was, you know, pretty unique for that time period. Speaking of Aaron Hernandez on the follow-up, the gap between Super Bowls between 04 and 14, how did that contribute to the Patriots taking risks and picking a guy like Aaron Hernandez, who obviously had a lot of off-the-field issues? Well, I think there was, you know, there was some impatience and some desperation. And when you're, uh, you know, when you're trying to do things one way and you don't get to where you get at, you start to push the envelope. Uh, and the Patriots have done that in any number of ways, uh, you know, Spygate, Deflategate, and the drafting of Aaron Hernandez was one of those instances. You know, everybody in football knew that he had issues to be kind, right? Uh, and every team in football, he was a, you know, he's a first-round talent who, who dropped several rounds. And there's a, there was a reason for that, because everybody knew that he, you know, he was trouble. He, you know, he'd been investigated by the police. He had drug issues. He had issues of violence. He'd been in a number of fights. He'd even, you know, been under suspicion of murder before. And they, every other team overlooked it, and then the Patriots didn't. Uh, and they saw what he could do for them on the football field. And on the football field, you know, he was a great player. You know, they picked up him and Ron Gronkowski at the same time. And that gave them this double tight end set that no one else had. Because both of them were not just, you know, great tight ends. They were great players. And you could move, you know, Hernandez into the H-back slot, or you could split him out. He had the speed. He wasn't as big as Gronkowski, but in a lot of ways, I think he was a little more electric. And all of a sudden, the Patriots had this offensive scheme that they didn't have before. Because the one thing they've been really, really smart about uh, ever since they got Tom Brady is they've never really asked Brady to do things he can't do. 
He's never been, you know, uh, Brett Favre or a Daryl LaMonica, the old AFL guy they used to call the mad bomber. You know, he's never been a guy that could throw the ball 60 yards, but he's always been a very, very accurate passer. So they've always designed an offense that's been able to take advantage of that, where he's been able to get rid of the ball quick because he's not very mobile, uh, a lot of receivers underneath. And with Hernandez and Gronkowski, you had two fabulous weapons that he could use that played to his strength, getting rid of the ball quick, throwing shorter passes to people who could gain yards after they caught it. Uh, that's what they've asked him to do just about all the time. They've, you know, they very, very rarely had a wide threat that was an upper echelon receiver. Randy Moss was one. He was with the Patriots for a couple of years. The rest of the time, they've depended on people who are not deep threats, so to speak. Uh, and that's really played to their strength. But, you know, they hadn't won for a long time. They rolled the dice. Hey, and for a short time, it worked because uh, with those two guys, with Hernandez and Gronkowski, the Patriots were suddenly the most explosive offense in the league. Now, Aaron Hernandez, and obviously the you know his short life, the you know the tragedy with uh, Odin Lloyd. Uh, what what obligation now falls? Do you think on, on the on the fan with all we're learning about football and and long term health and cognitive problems that you know players suffer? Well, I just think in uh, in all sports, not just football, but in all sports, I think fans would do well to keep in mind that just because someone is a great player doesn't mean they're a great person. Just because a team wins a lot doesn't mean they're morally superior to every other team out there. Um, you know, there's a lot you have to swallow when you decide to become a fan of a team. You have to take the good and the bad, and you have to admit to the good and the bad. And, you know, in the instance of, you know, Aaron Hernandez, it's underscored, you know, pretty clearly. Great player, not a good guy, damaged guy, messed up guy. Uh, to a certain level, you know, you feel sorry for him. I mean, it's later come out that he supposedly had, you know, uh, CTE to the degree that very few players have had. Um, which certainly might have played a role in some of the things he did. And that the Patriots, you know, they've, that was one example of them pushing the envelope that for all their success, that doesn't mean they're morally superior. They're not winning because they're good guys. They're winning because they've decided to really place a priority on winning. And I think there's a truism in sports. If you're trying to do anything other than win, you're probably going to lose. And if you just keep focused on winning, and sometimes that's focusing on winning at all costs, you're probably going to win. But there is a price to be paid with that. And that price sometimes is in regard to your reputation. And, uh, you know, you certainly hope it doesn't uh, result in the deaths of, of a person like it did with Odin Lloyd. But, uh, you know, there's some responsibility there. And, and I have to say, the Patriots really didn't own up to their responsibility uh, with Aaron Hernandez. They they tried to pretend that they didn't know uh, about all his issues when they did. And, uh, you know, there's as reported in the book, there was uh, the year before everything took place with Hernandez, you know, he apparently told, you know, Belichick 
that, uh, you know, he was in fear of his life, and Belichick told him to move to a safe house. Well, you know, if my kid tells me she's in fear of her life, I don't tell her to move to a safe house. I go to the police. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do something about that. And uh, But, you know, when winning is the bigger priority, you know, sometimes you don't do the right thing. Uh, you do something that turns out to be the wrong thing. Well, yeah, one one uh, player that I found fascinating that you, whom you mentioned is, is Ted Johnson, the former linebacker who's, you know, you know, classic organizational soldier in in uh, sports speak, but also something of a whistleblower. Is he maybe the most layered uh, character, char- if you can speak of him as a character, in this in this nonfiction book? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Ted Johnson was, uh, you know, kind of your quintessential inside linebacker. He was the guy that uh, didn't necessarily make the tackle, but he took a lot of punishment. Uh, took a lot of blockers on so other people could make the tackle. And, you know, it was just a real hard-nosed, you know, total football player, but also someone who, you know, even after, you know, he was known to have concussions, reported to have concussions, that the Patriots kept on sending him out there. Now, Johnson went out willingly. He, he admits that himself. But, um, you know, he paid the price for it um, because he was affected by multiple concussions. And I think there's a famous incident where the coach, you know, even though he'd had a concussion, you know, forced him, asked him to participate in full contact drills. And he did. And then he was told, well, why'd you do that? Well, I had to make sure you would. Um, You know, and he did so. He did so willingly. But, you know, as many football players have found out that while they're playing and they'll say they'll do anything and it's worth the price, when he got done playing and realized that he was having problems with depression and with mood swings and all this other stuff, um, it wasn't uh, worth it. Uh, and he didn't think it was worth it. And he did, uh, you know, make his feelings known. And, you know, I think the, the quotation from him is that, you know, he, think he, he thinks he broke Bob Kraft's heart when he came out and said that he thought he was mistreated by the Patriots. Well, you know, poor Mr. Kraft. <laughs> but uh, Bob Kraft doesn't have to live with what Ted Johnson does. And I think about this as a, as a journalist, as someone who, you know, in this book has certainly written about football and I'll profit from it. But anybody who works in football or plays football or profits from it in any way, and that includes journalists, uh, there's a certain reckoning that you're profiting off of a sport, which in many instances leaves its players diminished and causes them to have shorter lives. And, um, you know, that's a question that every fan has to answer for themselves. Uh, and every journalist who covers football has to, has to think about. And certainly the people who coach football have to think about that. I'm going to just switch gears a little bit to the tuck rule game, the last game at Foxborough. I have a couple of questions left on my end I'd love to get through because I also want to quickly ask you, and we both, I think, really want to ask you about BASW. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask you quickly, the tuck rule game, the last game at Foxborough, for, was for a lot of Patriots fans, redemption. And I don't think a lot of fans outside New England and a lot of people that aren't necessarily Patriots fans but might be football fans or just sports fans know how it was redemption for a call by a man, a referee. And you can tell me if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Is it Ben Dreeth? 
Well, Ben Dries is the is the referee in the um, in the playoff game they had against the Oakland Raiders. Yes, where there was a roughing the passer call. Right. That's Ben. That's the Ben Dries game. That's the game that uh, the Patriots were playing Kenny Stabler's Oakland Raiders in the playoffs, and it looked like you know they were on their way to the Super Bowl. And the Patriots had a lead at uh, at the end of the game, near the end of the game. Kenny Stabler had to drive the Raiders down the field um, for the Patriots to lose. And they're on their way down the field, and uh, uh, a roughing the passer call was made uh, on the Patriots' nose guard, Ray Sugar Bear Hamilton, on a pass thrown by Kenny Stabler. They called roughing the passer. They get a first down. The Raiders go on to score. Guess what? Patriots don't make it. And in Patriots lore, uh, the name Ben Dreef is probably uh, causes the same reaction as the name Bucky Dent did to Red Sox fans. Um, that's the guy that screwed us out of something that was rightfully ours. And, uh, you know, I take a a somewhat different look at that than uh, most Patriot fans. What was interesting is, is, of course, I have the benefit of YouTube now, and there are several shots of that play on YouTube. And yes, from one viewpoint, it looks like a terrible call. Uh, and that's the viewpoint that's taken kind of from above. It looks like, at best, it's a marginal call. Uh, Sugar Bear doesn't really crash down on him all that hard um justifiable but at that point in the game it was a game that had a number of uh questionable calls before then you know patriots fans were were rightfully ticked off however there's another shot of that uh of that play taken from field level which of course would have been the perspective that the referee ben drace had and from that perspective, it looks like Sugar Bear just creams Kenny Stabler. <laughs> so from that perspective, the call was a little more justified than perhaps Patriots fans want to believe. What's funny about that game, and this is a great thing when you get to go back and, and really look at something like that closely, is the real turning point in that game came at the end of the first half when the Patriots, for some unknown reason, decided they would call a play that called for Russ Francis, their all-pro tight end, to throw a pass. Russ Francis got rushed, got panicked, threw off his back foot, floated a ball up there, it was intercepted, whereas by all rights, the Patriots probably should have scored on that drive, and had they scored on that drive, what happened at the very end of the fourth quarter probably wouldn't have mattered. But but in, in, in any way, would, would playing against Oakland in the tuck rule game for a, for a Patriots fan be some sort of a, a redemption for well, that? Well, the Patriots, the Patriots that viewed the tuck rule game as the game that was redemption was payback right. <laughs> for the Ben Dreef game because, you know, uh, because they got the call finally. You know, that's probably the first time in Patriots history where Lucy didn't pull the football away on them. The football got pulled away from somebody else because I remember watching that game 
and seeing the ball come out, and I'm like, that's a fumble. You know, this game's over. And then miraculously, this rule that did exist and uh, doesn't exist anymore, uh, but this rule that did exist where the quarterback, if he was, you know, bringing the ball back in and it was knocked out of his hands, it wasn't a fumble. And that was the call on the field. It went the Patriots' way. Um, you know, the, the the other fans howled this time, not Patriots fans. So, so in Patriot lore, that's the the, the balancing of uh, of good and evil. You know, the pendulum swung halfway back there, and uh, you know. For better or worse, and I suppose better if you're a Patriots fan, worse if you're a fan of everybody else, is that since that time, it seems like most of the calls seem to have gone the Patriots' way. Is uh, is that a conspiracy by the league? Probably not. But uh, just as you know, the Red Sox went uh, nearly a century with everything going wrong, and now they've gone, uh, you know, about. Uh, a little over 10 years with everything going right. I think the Patriots have have enjoyed some of that, too. They had a number of things go wrong for the franchise for 30-plus years, and now for 20-plus years they've had a lot of things go right. Um, you know, I hesitate to say this. Patriot fans probably won't want to hear it. But, you know, at some point the pendulum's going to swing the other way again. <laughs> That's the nature of sports, right? I, I quickly just want to ask you um, – uh, the first time I think anyone had ever heard the term Boston Strong was after the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013. And when I saw a picture in the book of Len St. Jean, who uh, played both sides of the balls for the ball for the Patriots, he was known as the Boston Strong Boy. Is that where the roots of that term came from? Actually, I think, uh, and this is local knowledge because I'm here in Vermont, uh, um, we had Hurricane Irene up here in Vermont was it five or six, seven years ago? And in the wake of Hurricane Irene, Vermont kind of adopted the phrase Vermont Strong to show how they responded to in the wake of of Hurricane Irene. I think the use of Boston Strong was kind of stolen from Vermont in the same way that, in the same way that, you know, everybody calls, uh, uh, you know, it's now Patriot Nation, before that, the first team that I recall using that uh, uh, moniker were the Red Sox. It was Red Sox Nation, and they got that from a sports writer who adopted it from Janet Jackson's album Rhythm Nation. <laughs> so, wow! So when you get deep in the weeds in this kind of stuff, um, you start to you start to, to to kind of know where some things started. Uh, and actually, yeah, Boston Strong started in Vermont. It was Vermont Strong. You get license plates in Vermont that said Vermont Strong. But, but, well, you know, it definitely doesn't have to do, deal with Lens Saint Jean. Then um, I was going. I was gonna uh, just. I'm gonna let Nate uh, ask you a, a question here, and I've got. I'm gonna get you to read after this because we always like to get our authors to read, and then we can wrap it up. Uh, I just want to thank you. It's been an hour now, and we appreciate your time, and we'll we'll be out of your way soon. But go ahead, Nate. Yes, obviously, uh, for a I guess a bookworm such as I, I think the anticipation for the best American sports writing. It's probably like the anticipation that a college basketball fan has for March Madness. You know. 
knowing when the book's coming out. It's now in its, I believe, 28th year. But I just wonder, how have the it's challenge... It's Madness for me, too, because that's when I have to have it all turned in. Uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> how, but how have the challenges evolved in terms of uh, putting together, I guess, the, the field... Um, you know, to you know, just totally torture the basketball analogy for the guest editor. Uh, like, how how much bigger has that beast to become over nearly three decades? Well, I mean, I've been doing it so long that it's kind of it's well integrated into my life. Um, so it's not as daunting a task uh, as it might appear. I think if someone was to was to start it up, it would be a really daunting task, but I've been, you know, doing it a long time. I, as I say, you know, my daughter's like 22, and she's she's become accustomed to seeing a big pile of stuff in the corner somewhere, um, because I, I let things pile up for a while, and then read until the pile goes down, then it piles up again, and I'm just accustomed now to kind of constantly keeping my eyes open for work over the course of the year, and then the process itself hasn't changed that much. I still put out a call for um, for writers to contribute their own work, for publications to send in work, for for just readers of the book to send in stories that they've read that they think uh, merit inclusion. So you know, so I'm used to it. I guess is the short answer. And you know, it changes a little bit every year. The guest editor doesn't have to follow my suggestions, and in, and in this year's case, he he made many of the. His, selections on his own, and that's fine. It gives the book a different texture each year. Um, it's not supposed to be the same every year, uh, and that's why we have a guest editor. And, uh, you know, the book is, is done under a set of, a lot of people think it's my book. It's not my book. Uh, the publisher, Houghton Mifflin, has a set of parameters that we work under uh, every year. And, you know, I just kind of keep, uh, I keep the ball rolling and I keep the train running. Uh, that's how I kind of look at my role in it. I've never picked uh, a single story for the book. That's always been uh, the guest editor's role. They can ignore my suggestions or they can follow them. Uh, that's totally up to them. So, um, But like I said, at this point, uh, you know, it, it's almost like breathing. I get up every day and I breathe. I get up every day and I keep my eyes and ears open for uh, stories that I think... Uh, might make the book. I mean, the only criteria I've ever used is uh, uh, I, I like to I like stories that once I read them, I want to read them again. Uh, and that's as complicated or as uncomplicated as I can make it. I don't know of any other way to do it because I, I try to put myself in a reader's position. And anytime I read a book, I hope it's good enough that I want to read it again. Well, and so I try to uh, I try to pick out stories that once I read them. I want to read it again. Well, I've certainly read many of the... Uh, since Nate actually was the first person that gave me the best of American sports writing, I've read uh, certain stories many, many times. The one that stands out to me is Skip's, Skip Hollinsworth's uh, story about called Still Life, about the Texas football player. Uh, but I don't want to go down that, that, that wormhole right now because we're running out of time. So I just want to quickly get back to the book. And I want to ask you, or I want to tell you that as me and Nate have said, you know, we know a lot of people, especially younger than us, and the history of the Patriots essentially boils down to three people for them, and that's Kraft, Brady, and Belichick. You've shown that it's so much more than that. And I want you to read what I thought was the most poignant part of the book, uh, a little uh, excerpt from page 341, if you have the opportunity to do that. Sure. 
Okay, this is uh, this is actually from the last chapter, which is uh, a question, and it says Dynasty's End because uh, the franchise is at that point where everybody's beginning to wonder if this is the end. We'll see in a few more weeks, I suppose, but um, here we go. The accounting of wins and losses is neither the full story of this team nor their entire history. And despite recent events, the future of the team does not reside in the fates of three men named Belichick, Brady, or Kraft, nor in the debate over some specious notion of legacy. The most misused phrase in sports, legacy is not an accounting quantified by numbers, money, victories, awards, or even championships. It is, by definition, not something that one possesses, but a gift one leaves behind for the next generation. And in this context, the lasting legacy of the Patriots belongs not to anyone who has ever owned or coached or played for the team. Not to Billy Sullivan or Bob Kraft, not to Mike Holovac or Bill Belichick, and not to Steve Grogan, Curtis Martin, Drew Bledsoe, or Tom Brady. No, the lasting legacy of the Patriots, the true gift, resides with their fans. From the first few who traipsed down Commonwealth Avenue to watch a team they'd never seen before in a league they'd barely heard of, to the ones who screamed themselves hoarse over Jim Nance barreling over tacklers, who waited in traffic on Route 1, pulling on a tall boy, who huddled in the snow on aluminum bleachers. From the fans who booed Chuck Fairbanks to the ones who laughed with Billy Sullivan, listened to Gil and Gino on the radio, sneered with Bill Parcells, cheered with Adam Vinatieri, and cried with Malcolm Butler. Since 1960, the fans have been the only constant in this franchise, no matter who has owned it, coached the team, or played on the field. They are the true legacy of the Patriots, which at its heart is all about loving something enough to care what happens, no matter what happens. You're either in or out, win or lose, and longtime fans know that. Well written and well read, Mr. Glenn Stout. We'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show, because I think I speak for Nate when I say... A- the biggest influence of this show, or one of the biggest influence, influences for us doing the show, is is best American sports writing, which um, you you know that's your baby. So thank you so much. I'm just going to ask you, as as any good journalist, and I'm probably using that term loosely with myself, good journalist. No, any good journalist would ask you, is there anything else you want to add? No, this has been terrific. It's always uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about books you've written with people who've actually read them and thought about them and you know uh, we have a responsibility as writers to as you said before respect your readers and uh, I hope that uh, Richard and I have put together a book uh, that respect its readers uh, that's all you can ask for and uh, hopefully enough of them will agree we'll be able to do another one sometime absolutely thanks again for your time hey thank you so much I really appreciate it